What in your observation are the common traits of these sort of iconic retail founders as we've come to know them? These are great questions. They're great questions because there's the right answer and there's the answer I want to say. So I'll give you the right answer. Welcome everybody to In Conversation with Shopify Plus. I'm your host, Jason Buckland, and we welcome you back for the premiere of the new season of our podcast, where we speak with the very best and brightest in business. Season one of our show was all about big names and big conversations. We spent some really good time for some really good and candid discussions with Chip Wilson, the founder of Lululemon, Danny Reese, the CEO of Canada Goose, not to mention Steve Madden, the man himself. And season two, you're in for a treat because we really spent a lot of time and effort tailoring and curating our guest list, which again, is gonna be a really exclusive rundown of some of the most prominent names in retail, investing and direct to consumer. We open our second season with a good one. We will speak to a lot of founder and CEO types for this show, but if there is one person with a grip most firmly on the pulse of this space, it must be Webb Smith, the founder of 2PM, the consulting and investment firm that exists, most notably as a very important and powerful newsletter by the same name. I know many of you listening subscribe to this thing covering the intersection of e-commerce and direct to consumer. Stick around with us for the next little while because the great thing about Webb is that he is mostly an independent observer, which in this case means he has to hold back or muffle his opinions to precisely nobody. So this was a favorite conversation of mine where Webb shares with us his most honest thoughts about how to navigate the considerable upside and considerable downside of Amazon. If you're a D2C brand, we'll talk about the future of e-commerce returns and how companies are going to turn a real pain point today into something closer we hope to net zero losses. And we hear all the time in this business about some of the real iconic D2C company founders. I'm thinking names like Ty Haney of Outdoor Voices or the Warby Parker guys. And Webb tells us just what goes into making people like these in a very, very competitive field, mind you, stand out above the rest. It's a wealth sport in a lot of ways because it takes accumulation of so many resources and connections and funding sources and PR strategies and knowing the right people to implement those strategies that I would say that the commonality between all of them is that they could have probably done anything in the world and they chose to launch brands. All right, we go to him now. Our guest today is the man behind what must certainly be among the most influential coverage of the direct consumer and e-commerce spaces. Webb Smith is the founder of 2PM, a media investing and consulting company, but perhaps most notably a very well-read and very well-trafficked newsletter. No lesser people read this thing than those on the level of Joanna Griffiths, the founder and CEO of Nix, who recently shouted out 2PM as her quote, go-to newsletter for everything D2C. He joins us today from his home near Columbus, Ohio. Webb, it's great to have you. Thank you for being here on In Conversation with Shopify Plus. Jason, it's, uh, it's my pleasure to finally hop on the mic with you. Webb, you are a longtime observer of D2C companies of all sizes. We won't spend too much of this chat today speaking about the pandemic, but we finally appear to be in a better place. Summer is here, and at least in many parts of the world, especially in the United States, it is not difficult to picture a retail world getting its feet back underneath it in some capacity. In all that you have seen over the previous 16 months or so, which D2C companies weathered this crisis best and what changes did they necessitate to do so? I'll speak outside of the portfolio first. I, I've admired what Cami did at Parade. I know that she experienced quite a bit of growth between 2019 and 2020. I think she amassed over 10 million in sales in 2020 up from something like two or three, which is just extraordinary for year two. 
Rowing blazers inside the portfolio. Listen, these are expensive threads and frankly, this isn't loungewear per se. So the fact that the company grew tremendously over the pandemic, despite being essentially preppy slash streetwear, it was pretty, pretty amazing to see. I'm curious about the evolution of building a D2C brand as you've seen it. And this is a bit of a history lesson for all the kids out there. Webb, you've spoken often about Harry's, yes. the men's shaving and personal care brand that began as a subscription service online, then started appearing on shelves in Target, which I recall being pretty big news when it happened. And later, before, of course, the deal fell apart, which I'll ask you more about in just a second, Harry's was to be acquired for $1.4 billion by the company that makes Schick, the legacy brand that then almost certainly viewed Harry's as a direct competitor. So... Harry's, in the view of many, is a good example of a kind of hallmark D2C company. It may not be the one that started it all, but certainly was one of the early players that did a lot of things right. Harry's was founded in 2012, but I'm interested to reflect a bit on the rise of Harry's as it pertains to brands today. In your view, Web, what are things Harry's did that may need to be tweaked or updated to have success in D2C now? And conversely, what are things Harry's did that are still the model playbook for growing exponentially in this space? I always feel like that's a trick question. Let's just say I, I can't name very many direct-to-consumer brands that raise that much money that early these days. Even if you look at what Joanna's done at uh, NYX, she raised uh, a lot of money in that last round. I think it was something like $53 million, but she had already proven the viability of the company. I think they were raking in over $100 million in sales as of the last news article I thought I saw. And she had proven the concept beyond proving the concept before a major race, whereas that particular class of direct-to-consumer brands, Warby, Casper, Harry's, so on and so forth, they tended to raise money a lot earlier because they could, and there's nothing wrong with that. I just know that a lot of the high-performing companies today are taking the, the longer grind to at least approach profitability before raising a mega round. Does the Harry's model still work today? The answer is I don't know. I don't, I don't know many companies that are coming out of the gate in the D2C or CPG you know, sector raising that, that kind of money early on. And frankly, it's going to work for Harry's, right? Because Casper's public, Warby Parker apparently is going public, Away is going to go public. I mean, they're all going to achieve the outcomes that they originally set out to achieve. So this isn't degrading them at all. I just know that the companies that have launched in sort of the second and third waves are judged a little bit differently. I think we mentioned uh, Figs, for instance. Uh, one of the most important things about their S1 was, was their profitability. And you can find that attribute across a host of other CPG and direct-to-consumer brands that were sort of launched after that initial wave of highly funded direct-to-consumer brands. Well, quick postscript to our note about Harry's. Its acquisition deal, as we mentioned, was blocked last year by the Federal Trade Commission over, in essence, competition concerns that for consumers, the purchase would, quote, remove a critical disruptive rival that has driven down prices. Now, tales of the billion-dollar acquisition, of course, carries a very real allure among retail D2C companies for some brand founders and many of their employees. Corporate acquisitions are a very critical and very lucrative exit strategy. What did conversations you might have had on this matter conclude, Webb? Did the world of retail startups view the falling through of the Harry sale as a one-off decision when it happened? Or did this scare the industry a little in that for those motivated to build a brand to one day sell that brand, 
maybe a big payday has now become an even more difficult proposition to achieve. I think initially it scared everyone except for Mike Duda. I remember Mike being completely secure in the understanding that Harry's would find a way to build an even better company after this hiccup. I, I think it was a one-off. You know, after the initial shock, it became very clear that what set Harry's apart was essentially their vertical nature. I mean, Harry's owned a factory, right? One of the few factories that could produce these types of blades. And so I'm not saying I agree with the FTC. I will never agree with them in this context because I want positive outcomes for all direct consumer brand founders. But if there was one brand that could get knocked down like this, it was probably them. Away doesn't own their factory, right? Uh, Casper doesn't actually make mattresses. Harry's is a manufacturer of blades. And as it scales, as it becomes that 5, 10, 15, 20 billion dollar company someday, eventually it's going to prove that in some ways the FTC was probably accurate in their assessment. Webb, you've become something of an expert chronicler of the retail founder, the types of people that really succeed in high level D2C. I promise this is the last time we'll mention Harry's, but that's a company that was co-founded by a guy named Jeff Rader, which, hello, also a few years earlier was a co-founder of Warby Parker. So a pretty good resume there for him. Jeff studied at Wharton, and that's a common link between a lot of these founders, or they have shown themselves to hold Harvard MBAs, or if not traditional education, they are remarkable personalities. Somebody like, say, Ty Haney from Outdoor Voices, who really embodies and became a public ambassador for her brand in every way. What, in your observation, are the common traits of these sort of iconic retail founders as we've come to know them? These are great questions. Um... They're great questions because there's the right answer and there's the answer I want to say. Uh, so I'll give you the right answer. They're all very well connected, right? They're all coastal with the exception of maybe Tyler and they're all very well educated. The direct consumer industry, especially in that era of it, Cami went to Columbia, you know, Jack Carlson went to Oxford. You know, it's, it's a wealth sport in a lot of ways because it takes an accumulation of so many resources and connections and funding sources and PR strategies and knowing the right people to implement those strategies that I would say that the commonality between all of them is that um, they could have probably done anything in the world and they chose to launch brands. And that's not a knock against them because obviously I'm, I'm one of those people in a lot of ways, clearly not of their caliber, but um, I'm a brand founder and you have to decide that that's what you want to do. And I think that anyone that does that and is successful in that could have probably done a host of things if they had wanted to. Well, staying on founders for one last point, and let's share some names here if we can. Founder product fit is a principle you have been vocal about. In short, the longer a founder sticks around and the longer a founder continues to represent its brand ideals and be the most public champion for them has proven to be in many cases very positive for that company. A prominent example is Joanna Griffiths at Nix, who we mentioned at the top of the show and who this year famously refused funding from any investors that drew concerns about her pregnancy, which made headlines and received rousing applause from many people, including Nix's core customer base. You've noted how the founder is a very, very important cog in the wheel of customer acquisition and retention. Who in your mind are the founders that are, in a sense, most valuable to their brands in retail D2C today? You know, Jack wrote the book Rowing Blazers, so that's one of them. Helena at House, her and Woody are amazing ambassadors of their brand. Ben Witty at Recess, Alessandro at Sanzo. I love 
the spirit behind the founders at Figs. And obviously, as you mentioned, Joanna is a great example of why founder product fit matters in Nix. And again, this is really important to sort of remind the audience that product market fit has been like the the catalyst behind a lot of investment decisions, right? Everyone says, well, does the does the product actually have a place in the market? What you mentioned earlier in your question is equally important. Can the founder push and pull the product forward until the product can push or pull itself? And that's why I believe that founder product fit is equally, if not more important. And those founders are the, the commonality that they share is that it's not contrived, right? Helena and Woody live on a farm. Like they are about that life. You know, if you talk to Ben Woody at any given day, all he's going to talk about is how his substances positively impact the human mind. He will talk to you about it for seven hours at a time. That's how much he is involved in this process. And so the, the idea that direct consumer brand founders can do it just because they think it's cool and come out of Wharton or wherever and just do it because that's where their mind is taking them at any given moment. I think that that's a common misconception. All right. So we have begun the show today with plenty of talk about the upper crest and what is possible for the very top 1% of retail startups. But a tenet that you have espoused over the years, Webb, is this idea that you'd so much rather brands build slowly than chase rapid success. And that's a fine idea in principle, though I imagine a terribly difficult thing to adhere to once there's the intoxicant of early growth for a company. What are the common traps you observe D2C brands falling into in terms of moving too quickly? And what advice do you tend to give for the most appropriate pace to grow relative to each brand's circumstance? Well, I don't know if there's an appropriate pace, but I will say that one of the traps is growth for growth's sake, right? Retail is an EBITDA industry, right? It's always been judged by the profits that you can spit off and how likely it is that you can spit those profits off in perpetuity. And that's how private equity firms and the public markets determine if a retail brand is, is worth its grain of salt. It wasn't until really the ease of sort of the launch of brands that it became, how do we arbitrage this brand to grow as quickly as possible? How do we find these opportunities to grow as quickly as possible by any means necessary, right? And that's just not how the public markets or private equity, who is typically the catalyst behind acquisition, it's not how any of these bodies ever judged the success of a company. And so I'm a proponent of slow growth because in most cases, slow growth means that you're actually focused on the right things and you're not pumping huge sums of money into advertising sources that are not sustainable. And you're not using those unsustainable advertising sources to sort of bandage over uh, incompetencies within the walls because eventually those incompetencies come to the light. And so, again, that's my sort of basis for why slow growth can be advantageous for the long term. A conversation you have taken part in previously has been on conversions. In essence, at some point soon, if serious evaluators are not there already, we will no longer look at traffic, impressions, even follower counts with much emphasis. We'll throw all that out and focus primarily on how a business converts eyeballs into customers and how loyal that audience tends to be coming back. What are the methods you have learned to be the truest drivers of conversion rate in retail e-commerce? So I just want to be clear, like that, that quote extends beyond retail uh, and traditional e-commerce. Uh, obviously, it's, it's derived from my study of retail and e-commerce. And what it means is essentially, you know, the idea of 
vanity metrics like likes or impressions and all of these things that we've judged brand by over the last decades is giving way to conversions being the ultimate measure of a brand success or a creator's success or a media company's ability to impact its audience, right? So you look at 2 p.m., if if no one's buying subscriptions, then I'm failing as a publication, right? If you're a creator and selling merchandise and you have millions of YouTube subscribers, but no one's buying your merchandise, it's probably an indication that your audience isn't as loyal and passionate as, as they could be. And for, for retailers, right? If they're paying for public relations and they're, you know, in these publications that are featuring the brand and advertising that the brand got XYZ impressions or this many people noticed the brand, whatever. However PR is judged these days, um, that, that notion is giving way to the simple fact that like if a person's looking at a product or a brand or a creator or whatever, that person will be driven to compensate that body, that organization in, in some way, shape or form. And that's the ultimate measure. And we're seeing that in the NFT space now. We're seeing that in, in, in a number of forms of decentralized finance. And it all began with ideas that stemmed from simple retail e-commerce. E-commerce as a percentage of total retail sales obviously continues to rise. This is news to precisely no one. Up now to about 20% or just under, depending on which portion of the globe you look at. But of course, a very real and very serious side effect of any increase in online purchases is the corresponding increase in the need for online returns. We have even began to see some retailers like Amazon and Walmart say to customers, you know, if the price point is low enough or the cost to ship and process the return is high enough, just keep your online order and we'll still refund your money rather than having you send it back. Now you have staked a claim here, Webb. This is a space you're watching closely. You wrote this year that the quote tail is beginning to wag the dog when it comes to returns. And you even shared this anecdote about how much of the foot traffic coming into major retailers like the American department store Kohl's is just to handle return packages from Amazon alone. Where is this going in your mind, Webb? If I'm a D2C brand and I'm terrified at rising return rates, what do I need to know to not get caught totally flat-footed here? I think uh, there's actually an organization that deals with this. Loop Returns is great about their their branding of post-returns commerce. And by that, I mean what happens to the return to prevent it from becoming a refund, right? They say that uh, not every return is a refund. So I think what we're going to see is, and I've written this in the context of what I hope Shopify will do someday, that there will be a way to prevent the loss of revenue by promoting post-returns marketplaces. So let's say instead of returning that physical product to Kohl's, we're talking about pure e-commerce returns right here, where it's going back to the 3PLs. And the 3PLs are doing QA. And the brand that has that average order value on the hook for a potential lost sale is relieved when that product is then purchased by someone else and that order is fulfilled and that product loss is now net zero or even essentially what they expected before the return sale, right? We're going to see a lot more of that given that the secondary market for returns will spur a lot of interest in larger companies and platforms building marketplaces of their own. 
I have a question more directly here about Amazon, if I may, Webb. Sure. As double-edged swords go, navigating Amazon is either as fruitful or as perilous as it can get for a D2C retail company. You've made notes of these principles before. When selling on Amazon, you have access to an amazing logistical network, including often fulfillment, not to mention a monster customer base that very well may discover your product at a rate greater than that of how they may out in the wild. On the other hand, a phrase you've used before, to be on Amazon, you have to quote, pay to participate, meaning that there is a clear cost to doing business there in the sense that your brand representation suffers on some level when a buyer has to check out from an Amazon product page and not your own website and the box in the mail says Amazon on it and not that of your brand. Or even that there is a risk, and we've seen it with Allbirds and many others, where maybe even your products are undercut or ripped off and copycatted on Amazon. What is the relationship you advise or like to see a DTC company have with Amazon? So a few things. For one, I think that agnostic packaging will be a lot more commonplace in the next five years. I actually think that Shopify will have agnostic packaging on, you know, um, reinstituted returns someday. And that's just a belief that I have. As it relates to Amazon, it is a gift and a curse. With Mizzen, I know for a while, our strategy involved selling our basic shirts on Amazon as sort of a top funnel capture and then selling our more premium shirts and our more uh, infrequent styles on our own Shopify hosted site. You always run the risk of Amazon knocking you off, but frankly, in retail, that's just commonplace. And so listen, I'm all for distribution and Amazon is not in my top two or three of companies that I would want to distribute too, but I understand why people do it or why brand founders do it. I think if anything, I've just tried to communicate that this is still somewhat of a nascent industry, whereas a lot of this progress has been made over the last 14, 15 years and retailers, brand retailers, brand founders rather have a hard time understanding sometimes that it's a contact sport where people are going to knock you off and undercut you and do all these things. Just be aware that that's the industry that we're fighting in before you take part in Amazon's practices because they are representative of the industry that you will find out about sooner than later, right? I think that's the best way of putting it. We are often protective in our own little direct-to-consumer bubble because we have brands that won't compete against one another and everyone plays fair, but in the greater system, the game is not really that fair at all. Taking a quick break from our chat with Webb Smith to bring you a preview of our next episode in this series with our guest, Pyle Kadakia. Pyle is the founder and executive chairman of ClassPass, who joins us to talk just what she learned from the founders of Birchbox and Warby Parker, who she met while working as a consultant at Bain & Company before she launched what would become her fitness empire. She'll tell us just what happens to a company when 95% of your revenue evaporates into thin air, like it did for ClassPass in the early months of 2020. And Pyle will also share some of the frustrations she felt when first raising capital for ClassPass about some of the, shall we say, homogenous patterns she observed in the venture capital process. It's about realizing, hey, when I'm listening to a woman pitch a business about boutique fitness, let me get people who understand boutique fitness. A lot of my VCs would obviously be like, oh, my wife does Pilates and yoga and all of that. And that's great, I appreciate that, but I'm like, those people need to be in the room and handing these checks out as well. That was Pyle Kadakia, 
who is next up in our series. Before we get back to WebSmith, this show is brought to you by Shopify Plus, the enterprise platform that powers the very best brands in the market from Allbirds and Gymshark to Staples and Heinz. And you can find out more today at shopify.com plus. Now, without further ado, let's get back to WebSmith. We are in a place now where direct-to-consumer retail is established enough that there's been a tipping point. You know, of course, no longer is D2C a novelty, and of course, we now see something of a passing of the torch in some ways, where so-called traditional retailers have had no choice but to dip into the D2C bag of tricks to stay relevant. In the history of this space as you've seen it, what are the things that D2C brands had borrowed from traditional retailers in the past? And conversely, what are the things that traditional retailers are taking now from D2C brands? Direct-to-consumer brands, they obviously borrowed the concept of thoughtful, expensive, well-engineered packaging and marketing, right? That's only a 50 to 60-year sort of notion in the industry. Before that, products are just products. And then you have Edward Bernays and all of his marketing strategies throughout World War II and, and you know post-war and... CPG became like the new industry where some of the best marketers in the world were contributing to the sale of goods. What I'm seeing now is that a lot of the incumbent companies are, are becoming better at the direct-to-consumer strategies than the actual brands that began as digitally natives. So these are large conglomerates like PG and Unilever, whether they've done so by acquisition or by bringing in talent to help them navigate a new ecosystem, a lot of these major retailers are becoming really good about either private label or building brands of their own uh, that can stand on their own that sort of resemble the same spirit of the direct-to-consumer industry that we're talking about today. And so it's important to know that for a lot of these new brands, you're entering a space where the old guard can compete with you and the arbitrage opportunity of beginning on the internet is essentially over. So I think this kind of leads naturally into my next question, which is, you know, these ideals regarding D to C brands versus traditional retailers, we know are not mutually exclusive. Even in some recent news, the long awaited shoe designed in tandem by Adidas and Allbirds has released. And we've seen this elsewhere with other kind of it brands like the New York fashion label, Aimee Leon door, which has done collaborations with very established companies like new balance and Porsche. What are the ways in which not only borrowing tactics, but actual partnerships between retail startups and traditional retail brands make the most sense to you? I think that naturally the way that the consumer mind works is we appreciate brands with heritage, right? And so the older a brand can make themselves feel, the more likely we are as consumers to believe that this brand has a long-term outlook for their industry. Like they're going to be around for a long time. And so when you see the, the Kith partnership with BMW, or the Amy partnership with Porsche or whomever, what they're doing is they're sort of reaching back into legacy brands and saying, please co-sign us because we want our consumers to know that we're not going anywhere. Rowing Blazers has done a wonderful job of this with Fila and with Ralph early on and so on and so forth. And I think it's just really important for a lot of other brand founders to understand that these strategies are more than partnerships to sell goods. They are partnerships that can positively impact consumer psychology. Now, I've got to think in some ways, this is not necessarily a one-way street where the newer company is getting all of the benefit. 
Do you see it the other way around where the older, more established company gets a shot in the arm by being affiliated with the newer company? Sure. I mean, it depends on the type of company, right? I mean, when, when, when Rowing Blazers did a deal with Fila, yeah, no one was talking about Fila online. So that provided some credence to them while also doing a service to Rowing Blazers. There's also the example of, you know, obviously we mentioned Porsche and we mentioned BMW and Amy's partnership with Drake's, for instance, right, in New York. These are companies that aren't often in the digital space or the digital media limelight. And so by by working with these younger brands, you're almost guaranteed to have write-ups in certain publications that you wouldn't have achieved on your own, even if you paid for it. And so like that's certainly a benefit for for these legacy companies that have been around for a long time. Otherwise, they're not going to be written about in like the hype beasts or the high stabilities or, or you name it. A few questions about 2PM, if we could, Webb. You are friendly with many of the founders and brands you cover. You once told a story, for instance, how Jen Rubio, the co-founder and now CEO of Away, helped you secure tickets to the Masters. And of course, you've grown close, at least professionally, with many other notable names in the space. Now, 2PM's coverage and what you write holds real influence, I think it's fair to say. Sure. How do you navigate your commentary on companies and people that you may have also developed personal ties to? Yeah, well, I think if you ask Jim Rubio, the last time that we spoke, I think was maybe three or four weeks ago. And the first question I asked was, are we okay? And the reason why I asked that question is because I've been incredibly, for a period, I was incredibly critical of a way, especially between fall and winter of 2020, going into the uh, spring of 2021. And so the one thing I pride myself on is objectivity. Even for the companies that are within the 2PM portfolio, I often will get asked by the founder why I'm highlighting other companies. A recent example of this would probably be you know, PostScript is in the 2PM portfolio. And I ran a few mega ads for Yapo, Yapo and their SMS marketing platform. I think that Yapo is a strong company. It's a, it's a company that's really important for the direct-to-consumer industry. And so I often have to have conversations about why my coverage or my opportunities presented to companies outside of my own personal interests is just as important as those personal interests themselves because the overarching strategy and mission of 2PM is to move the industry forward, right? And you cannot do that with your own personal interest as the soul of your focus. And so again, that may be a long-winded answer, but I believe what I believe unless the data proves me wrong. And when the data proves me wrong, I go with what the data says. Well, share as many details here as you wish, Brad, but have you had moments with business people, real contested moments that they've come back at you for things? Yeah. I, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure there are people within the walls of Shopify that don't love me all the time. Um, I am, I am a very passionate person about what I believe. And I believe that I'm more right than I am wrong most of the time. And so Am I trying to do a better job of being careful when I tread waters about beliefs, whether they are business oriented or social or otherwise? I'm trying to do a better job of that. But part of the reason why I think people are even attracted to 2PM and what I write is because they know that like whatever I do publish, whether it's a tweet or a database or an essay, whatever, it's from the heart. And I probably really, really believe that thing. And so, 
you know, I hear it from, I can hear it from people that are very high up in this industry that they love that about me. At the same time, I can assume that if I don't hear from people in the same industry that they don't love that about me at all. And just something that I have to deal with. All right. So I'm glad you brought up your portfolio because in addition, obviously to the newsletter, part of 2PM's business model is investing. You hold stakes in many DTC companies yourself. As someone that's read and listened to you for years, I know there is a laundry list of methods that you use to value private brands like this. There are quantifiable items you particularly appreciate, like cash conversion rate, a clean cap table, how effective a company's distribution system is, the size of its digital community. And then there are less clear values, things a bit more in the ether, like founder product fit, not merely the size, but the loyalty of a company's digital community. And then there's this idea of soul that you've really got to feel to believe the soul of a brand and what it stands for and how authentic it appears to be. Now, I understand some of this may be proprietary, but as specific as you're comfortable being, what is the rough formula of things you use to evaluate the future success of a D2C brand? Okay, so I think that a little bit of it is what we've already touched on, how well I think the leadership is suited for the industry and the time that they're in. Clean cap tables to me, that essentially means have they raised efficiently? I typically believe that if a company raises too much money, they are enabling themselves to mask over inefficiencies or weaknesses with, with capital. And so I look for the companies that don't have that privilege, right? And frankly, like I said just a few minutes ago, I look for the companies that I believe are moving the industry forward. And by believe, that's clearly a subjective analysis, right? It's based on things that I can measure and things that I'm not sophisticated enough to measure. I know that they're true, but I'm not sophisticated enough to put it on paper as a mathematical equation, right? I take in information all day, every day. I'm in this space from the crack of dawn until two o'clock in the morning, almost daily. And I just, I, I feel like I can assess things in a way that maybe isn't the best on earth or even close, but sufficient enough to make firm decisions that I know I won't regret whether they succeed or fail in the future. Well, in the space of long-term investing and speculation, often a question that's as intriguing as what your successes are is the inverse of that, the brands you weren't able to sink your teeth into at the right time. <laughs> to your mind web, if I may, what are the brand investments that got away for you over the years? Oof, uh, I, I mentioned them a couple times already. Parades, number one or one of the top ones, Topicals is one of them, probably Olipop. I don't think that they're taking investment right now, but I, I really like what the team at Cuts is doing. I think they're gonna be around for a long time. And uh, I really wish I could have gotten in uh, early with Hodinkee. We'll wrap here soon, Webb, but a few short forward-looking questions, if you'll allow before we go. Sure. If early 2021 for retail D2C brands will be defined as the recovery and stabilization of life and business after a pandemic. What do you believe will be the defining issue for these companies throughout the rest of this year? So I think it's really important to take advantage of the time that you're in. And obviously there's going to be a wave towards physical retail as people reverb away from what was over the pandemic. So naturally this means that if a brand can find the ability to invest in physical retail, whether temporary or otherwise, to take advantage of that reverb, that's highly advised. And so I guess the overarching theme here is be sophisticated enough to run an omni-channel operation that 
doesn't detract from the long-term mission that you have as a direct-to-consumer brand. You have been at this a long time. You've observed in some cases rises and falls, but in many cases the rise and continued rise of many D2C companies over the previous 15 years or so. When we look back at this period, I'm thinking names in a class like Allbirds, Glossier, Gymshark, who do you believe we will think of as having made up the kind of dictionary definition on the best version of what a retail startup can be? Well, I have to have, have to give a shout out to uh, another one of my alma maters. You know, Rogue is purely direct to consumer. And I think that what sets them apart is that they also have a passion for building people or at least attempting to. And by that, I mean hiring people, paying them well, giving them an opportunity to, to climb the ranks. We often think about retail in the context of just the products themselves. But if you've been around it long enough and you've seen it, you've seen the, the, the bricks and mortar of it all, for lack of a better phrase, you also want to see how the products themselves can build people or community, like actual community, right? Advertising operations, partnerships within the city that you live in, manufacturing, improving the houses around the factories that you're investing in. You know, like the, you see the power of what, what the industry could do if you're successful with the products that you're marketing, right? So it goes far beyond founders and their potential liquidity events or anything like that. It's like retail is a very powerful industry that can change a lot of people's lives for the better. If you let it, you just have to build something big enough for that to happen first. And so like, that's an example of one of those companies that's like, wow, I think they're at 1,600, 1,700 people now. And these are people getting paid like 20, 25 bucks an hour at the very least. And when I was there, maybe 50 or 60 people. That's, that's, that's a pretty substantial impact on society. And, and there aren't very many industries that can do that. Last one, Webb, and we've kind of hinted at this generally so far in our chat today, but who do you see as the next generation here? Who are some brands that have risen to some level of prominence today? that you'd put your money on to become the next major, major players in this space? I'd have to say any brand that's focused on others. So these are the brands that are founded by minority women, immigrants, people that maybe didn't have the Ivy pedigree or the East Coast credentials, right? As e-commerce continues to penetrate society in ways and grow its sort of influence on our habits, obviously, that means that it's going to trickle down to places that maybe didn't have access to that same technology five, 10, 15 years prior. And what that means is as the technology itself is democratizing, so are the people that are interested in the products that the internet has to offer. And we talked about founder product fit and all these things. It's like the beauty of the internet is that you get to see people that look like you sell you things that you wish that you could have sold other people if you had the opportunity. And maybe you will have the opportunity someday, right? I think the future is going to go to a lot of those people because frankly, it's the others, quote unquote, that are the majority of the world. And, and e-commerce is just now reaching them, right? It's just now leaving the upper middle class, the wealth class, coastal communities and moving to the rural parts of the country with tractor supply and or moving to more urban parts of the city with what they're doing at fast AF or GoPuff. You know, it's just, it's opening channels that will get new products 
to people that have felt probably a little bit neglected over the years. I want to thank our guest today. Webb Smith is the founder of 2PM, simply among the most influential chronicles at the intersection of media and commerce today. Find him and subscribe to the newsletter at 2PML. That's the number 2, PML.com. Webb, this has been great. Thank you for joining us on In Conversation with Shopify Plus. You bet, Jason. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks again to Webb Smith. And thank you again for listening. If you like what you heard today, stay tuned for our talk coming up next with Pyle Kadakia. She's the founder and executive chairman of ClassPass, which in January of 2020 became the first unicorn company of the decade, which of course is the designation save for private startups with a valuation of $1 billion or more. So do not miss her. And to find more of our interviews with guests like Ben Francis, the founder of Gymshark, Seema Bansal, the co-founder of Venus A. Fleur, and Dylan Lauren, who is Ralph Lauren's daughter, but also notably the founder and CEO of Dylan's Candy Bar, visit us online at inconversation.shopifyplus.com.